Welcome to Green Apple Pod, for people who want to think about education a little bit differently. I'm Jessica Enderlin-Natsum, a public school teacher and PhD candidate in education policy. I've spent nearly a decade observing and investigating how to make education the thing that's going to make our whole society happier and healthier. Now, I'm fighting to make that our reality. Are you new here? If so, I'm glad you're here. But just so you know, this series makes way more sense if you listen to the episodes in order. You can find the first episode, COVID and Teacher Retention, and get started there to get the full story. We'll be right here waiting for you when you get back. Last week, we explored teacher attrition from a different angle. What does it look like trying to hire teachers as a school leader? And what happens when licensure issues can bar you from the classroom? I hope it was thought-provoking for you, not just about what it looks like trying to staff a rural or a high-need school, but also to think about some of the systemic things that may make those big holes in our teacher supply pipeline. We're pivoting away from licensure and hiring today, but we're still sharing teacher stories. We have two former educator interviews for you, and both of them are about money. How much money does it take to keep teachers in schools? And then on the flip side, what happens when money simply isn't enough of a motivator to keep teachers in schools? Better yet, how do we think about compensation for teachers in the first place? And what needs to change in our minds to really elevate the conversation around teacher pay? We're going to hear about all of that and more on this episode of Green Apple Pod, The Teacher Attrition Vortex. This is episode four, Outcome, Not Income. A few weeks back, in our second episode, we first started talking about money and schools and teachers. We talked with Dr. Caitlin Anderson about the argument that, what if we just need to pay teachers more? So there's there's some evidence that uh, it actually takes quite a lot of money to recruit teachers to stay uh, in what we might call hard to staff or um, relatively disadvantaged districts. So when we're thinking about how much more we might need to pay teachers to go work in a more diverse school, a more economically diverse school, that cost is actually quite significant. Uh, and I there's there's been some studies on this, and I'm um, I don't know the the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it's 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 expensive, which is again the kind of my point about we can't it's not necessarily a solution that needs to be just everywhere we need to pay more because that's going to be very, very, very expensive. And what we really need to be thinking about are how do we address the inequities in terms of where teacher shortages are and where they have a hard time getting uh, quality teachers. Basically, if we're going to increase teacher pay as a policy lever in order to retain more teachers, we have to be really strategic about it. We can't just do a blanket raise where every teacher in the district gets a 5% raise, for example. We have to create policies that recruit and retain the types of teachers with the largest shortages, STEM teachers, SPED teachers, teachers in rural area, teachers of color. 
This isn't an uncommon idea either. The Edgenomics Lab, a research center out of Georgetown University, talks a lot about teacher compensation and benefits. One of their big points is about how teacher bonuses and raises are typically on a percentage basis, which ultimately only benefits teachers who have been teaching for a long time, and it can actually hurt the retention efforts for more novice teachers. So let's have a hypothetical example. Let's say your school board just approved a 5% bonus in pay for the upcoming school year. The salary scale ranges from $40,000 for a first-year teacher to capping at $65,000 for a teacher with 25 years of experience. So everyone's going to get a big 5% bonus at the start of the next school year for staying through COVID, whatever. But let's do the math on it. So for the first-year teacher who makes $40,000, A 5% raise comes out to $2,000, or about $166 per month, if you were to say spread it out and say that this was a raise, not a bonus. That's not bad. I mean, that's certainly helpful. But then you have a veteran teacher who's like 25, 30 years in, let's say they're making $68,000 a year. That's a $3,400 bonus for them, which comes out, if it was actually a raise, to $283 more per month. So one of the recommendations that the Edgenomics Lab brings up is instead of using a percentage policy for your bonuses and raises, those sorts of policies only reward teachers who are clearly already dedicated to teaching and in it for the long haul. They also, if you do them as a raise, can really increase the cost of a pension. And unfortunately, they disproportionately take funding away from newer teachers who might need more financial assistance or financial support you know, to get established, buy a house, start a family. And if they don't get that, they may think, well, maybe I don't need to stay in teaching if I already can't take care of myself. How will I take care of a family on this? So this percentage policy is really common in a lot of schools. And to be clear, I'm not saying we shouldn't reward teachers for staying in the classroom for 30 plus years. We all know those teachers are heroes. They are amazing. We need to try and make sure that we keep doing that. But whenever you have a system that has a short end of the stick like a percentage policy for your bonuses and raises, you are going to alienate people who are clinging to that short end of the stick and who may not be patient enough to wait 25 years for higher pay. And of course, we have to think of all of this with the evidence in mind. Is $283 a month really enough to keep high-qualified, experienced teachers in high schools? According to Dr. Anderson, it might not be. Getting really good, really experienced teachers to kids who have the most disadvantages could be even more expensive than a 5% raise. And even then, the money may not be enough. We're going to see a really clear visualization of this phenomenon in our next two teacher interviews. But first, I'd like to get started with Sean's story. Congratulations to the 2016 Teacher of the Year, Sean Sheehan, Norman High School! Norman Public School! Sean Sheehan, Oklahoman's reigning Teacher of the Year, is a finalist for a national award. Sheehan is one of four finalists for the 2016 honor. The Norman High School math teacher was named State Teacher of the Year in August. If you want to change something in education, what can you do about it? Do it. Go with it. Run with it. Since his first speech as the 2016 Oklahoma Teacher of the Year, running is exactly what Sean's been doing. Meet Sean Sheehan, the 2016 Oklahoma Teacher of the Year. Sean got started with his professional career in workforce development, working with young adults with special needs as they transitioned into adulthood and started finding their own jobs. 
let's see, it's 2009, 2010, and I'm in Oklahoma City, and I'm working uh, as a job coach for young adults with disabilities. And um, I was really frustrated that these recent high school grads, they tended to give me like the younger students, because I myself was at that time, so I'm like 24, 25. Um, they gave me the recent high school graduates, and these, these I call them kids because they were kids to me at the time, but like they only had maybe like a specific learning disability or they were somewhere on the spectrum, but it was very mild, moderate disabilities that totally capable of doing typical work, you know, and meaningful work in the community. And yet, you know, when we would show up for interviews or ask for applications, managers would just kind of be like, so what's wrong with him or her? And you'd be like, there's nothing wrong with them. Like the job is, you know, clearing the fitting rooms and sweeping the floors and restocking the shelves here in your business. And he's totally capable of doing that. Right. Like wow. you're not going to, it's not going to come out unless you give him a math test. Right. There's no. And so like seeing that and just having to answer those questions. So like regularly of just like the misconceptions that people had of what people with disabilities could or could not do um, was just so frustrating. Like I wanted to get on the front end of it. And so specifically, I'm like, you know what? I want to teach high school and I want to focus on just that workforce development component. Um, so I went to the University of Oklahoma, got my master's in special education and started teaching math. It's actually kind of a, it was a total roll of the dice on to, as to like why I'm teaching math. I like was indifferent and I got certified in English and math. And I remember telling my principal who was during the interview, he said, well, so you're certified in both. Are you partial to either? And I said, well, I mean, journalism degree, I suppose English, right? Like that makes the most sense. And then like when they call back, they're like, math it is. It was like, there's a shortage of math. They said, you teach in math. (laughs) I don't know. Like, why'd you even ask me? Now I know that was like a fake question that you would just, it's like a formal question, but really you knew where you replaced me. So um, yeah, yeah. And so that's, I'm, I'm there and I'm teaching and that's kind of how I arrived at education. We already talked about shortages of special education and STEM teachers. So yeah, Sean got assigned to teach special education math. That was almost a decade ago, but he still remembers the work and how difficult it was. But he didn't let that deter him, and he was driven by that original passion to help kids learn skills that would help them later in life. He started thinking about how he could make the math more accessible to the kids. Working with his department, he started creating a new curriculum from scratch. It was a flipped classroom. It's this popular model that has students engage with introductory content in the evenings as homework so they can spend more time focusing on active learning in the classroom. The curriculum was a hit, but he was also doing some PR work with an online campaign to bring more positivity to the idea of joining the teaching profession and hopefully increase teacher recruitment. Both of those things led to Sean being named District Teacher of the Year. You've got all these great initiatives with curriculum and um, great PR for teachers, which is needed everywhere. Um, you're up for district, and then then you're up for state teacher of the year. And yes, yeah. what's going on now? <laughs> so then it's year four of teaching, and I'm selected as one of you know twelve finalists for state teacher of the year. And you know, it seemed like a long shot for me because it's one of those you know folks don't ever like set out to be a state teacher of the year. It just kind of like happens because you're doing your job well and people just recognize you for it, Um, which is just, you know, it's a blessing. And, (laughs) and so I did over um, 
120 speaking engagements in that calendar year. And I mean, it was, it was a lot like it was, it's, I think people don't know how exhausting that work is too, but on the flip side of it, it's like, you know, you see all these things and, and Oklahoma is a very like rural state, right? It's over 520 school districts. People don't know that. They're like, why are there so many districts? Um, Cause they just think of like Oklahoma city or Tulsa or Norman, the big cities. Um, but it's largely rural. And so after that year, what is, you know, you hold back the curtain and I'm like, gosh, I have to do something about this. Like, I can't just go back to teaching math. Sean's whole experience with teaching and education changed that year. He saw things across his state that he couldn't ignore. So he started advocating for change to teacher pay. And when state legislators couldn't commit to raising teacher pay, he decided to run for office himself and make the commitment for them. And so it's the 2016-17 school year, and I decide, you know what, I'm going to run for Oklahoma State Senate because my guy who currently represents me is like clearly anti-public education. And that's not like an opinion, like he supported and tried to pass bills that were going to cut funding for public ed. Sean had a platform and he had a passion. He chased it down to the campaign trail, but unfortunately... That trail didn't lead to an office at the state capitol. And so our, our first child is born uh, October 30. And then we have the federal 20, like the presidential 2016 election. Here, here's what, for, for listeners, like behind the scenes, what never gets known is that when you, when you don't win a race, like there's not a, a runner-up prize. And so we've got people over at the house and... Our daughter is like six days old, seven days old at the time of the election. And your name, like my name is scrolling across the bottom of the screen after it was Trump and Clinton. And then you had U.S. senators and then and then state senators. And that's my name. And the percentages, it's like 60-40. And you're like, all right, 60-40. Like we, this, we'll see how it goes. And the night wears on and your percentages tick away. And then it gets to be pretty clear. It's 11 o'clock, like... You know, it, it was 65, 35 at that point. And I'm like, all right, well, that, this is kind of a long shot. It's 90% of the precincts are reporting. You know, my wife's in the nursery crying because she's like, I don't know, like, what we're going to do now. Because uh, we yeah. had put, like, all the eggs in the office basket, you know, or, or, you know, state senator basket. And people don't know when to, like, excuse themselves because or what to even say. Because mm-hmm. what do you say? And so... I lost and I show up to work the next day and uh, like every like high five and it should have been you is just like a punch in the gut. Cause it's like, yeah, but it wasn't like, it wasn't. And why wasn't it? Like I, I raised the most out of any recent like independent candidate in history in the state. I had the title, like I had the name recognition, but it didn't matter. And so it's 2017 at that point, the Oklahoma legislative session starts and I want to give the legislators a chance to make good on those promises that they made while out campaigning to say, hey, we're going to give our teachers a pay raise. We're going to improve funding in public education. Like, we've got you. And, and I the remember this. Is on. I was a second year teacher and that was making news. You saw like pictures of desks and books and rooms on the news. It was, yeah. it was national news at that point. Yes. Yeah. People were really, I mean, because what was happening in Oklahoma was really reflective of what was happening uh, across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, you know, for, for my story, you had this case where legislators in the past had just kind of dismissed it as like, well, the teachers that are leaving to surrounding states, it's because they have family, right? And, and for us, 
we were very transparent about like what we made and you know my take-home pay with my master's degree and title of teacher of the year was eighteen hundred dollars a month and my rent was eleven hundred and daycare was seven hundred so like that's my check and that's not counting insurance diapers groceries phone bill I mean, we were in the red and uh, embarrassingly so. And so telling that story, you know, being very just public uh, about it, you know, really, I think, captured the attention of of a lot of folks who just otherwise had kind of maybe not tuned into that. And so we basically were like, look, if 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 nothing changes, we're definitely like leaving, like we're leaving the state. And I did a series of blog posts just kind of like commenting on it, not to be like as a threat, but just like, hey, look, I mean, we have options, like stop acting like we don't have options in this profession. And so May rolls around and it's clear there's not going to be any big change to my paycheck unless I switch over to admin. And I'm like, not interested in that. Cause like, I know I can make a solid 20 K more doing the same exact job, just in a different place. Right. Like mm-hmm. how goofy is that? More teachers leaving Oklahoma and really who can blame them when better pay is luring them to surrounding states like Texas. And that includes Oklahoma's teacher of the year for 2016, Sean Sheehan from Norman High School. And so we moved south to Louisville, Texas and, you know, combined, uh, my wife and I were pulling about 40K more. It was like a third income earner in the household. And you're both Um, teachers, correct? Yeah, we're both teachers. Yeah. So she teaches English and I teach math. And I think people like they were like, oh, we you don't know about like the cost of living as if I hadn't done the math, like, like I don't know how to budget. <laughs> and so I made that blog post and I was like a couple months into being here down in North Texas, like, Hey, here's a side by side of like cost of living in Norman, Oklahoma and, you know, Louisville, Texas. And look how much more we're in the green. So and Norman's a big city so, in Oklahoma, which is where you think you'd at least have the best pay. And that's where you were at with the master's yeah, in state. We did have year. like more competitive pay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so yeah we we called it and we moved down and then you know we're in a good district that welcomed us with open arms and uh we're we're happy to be where we are and just like that another amazing award-winning teacher out of a classroom granted sean wasn't gone like all the way he was just next door so to speak but that's one more classroom of kids who lost out on having that high quality teacher who needed that teacher because the teacher literally didn't have enough money to live off of. How would you feel if you were a parent and you knew your kid had the opportunity to have an award-winning, passionate teacher, but the state couldn't pay him a living wage despite his national award and master's degree? Instead, your child will most likely be taught by his replacement, who is a more novice teacher, still enthusiastic, still happy to be there, still doing it for the right reasons, but with significantly less experience in the role. What would you pay to keep that high quality teacher like Sean in the room with your kid? And obviously your story is a little bit different than a lot of the um, stories I'm telling on this podcast. Most of the teachers that I'm talking to, like they're out, they're not in the classroom. And if you're the story of the person who was, again, doing everything you could, imagine how many are just at the baseline, like, why do this when I can go work anywhere else and actually have a small savings account and go on vacation once a year? People would comment as if, uh, like, there was a Reddit article that kind of narrated my story, and there are 4,500 comments on it. And you know you're not supposed to read the comments, but you can't because it's got your face and your name on it. Like, you can't help it. And, like, people were brutal. Like, people were brutal, and they were just like, he must be terrible with his money. He must have, like, all kinds of college debt. And for the record, it's like, at the time, I think I only had, like, 5,000 left in college debt. So pretty, like, good 
on the debt. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that like we had the one car payment, the other car was paid off. So we were about as good as you can be for a new, like, you know, a young couple. Um, we checked all those boxes, but yeah, I mean, you know, internet trolls, you just got to kind (laughs) of ignore them. (laughs) In other professions, people are given like a going away party, like, oh, you're practicing law in New York. And that's, you made it like big time. There was no going away party for us. Like we threw ourselves a little thing, but it was just kind of this quiet, like, all right, like shoulder shrugs, good luck, adios. Like, and some people were very critical. They were like, way to abandon, you know, your kids. Um, and, and, you know, like we were, we were forced to choose between other kids' well-being and my own. You know, of course, I'm not going to make that. And so, yeah, we, we make the shift. We come down here. I'm teaching for a year. And then once that door had already been open for me as like teacher of the year, you can't just go back to like, well, I'm going to close my door and I'm just going to teach algebra. And, and that's it. <laughs> because after I leave, teachers walk out in the state of Oklahoma. Like that's how fed up they are. Um, because now they have just this collection of stories from educators who have fled to Missouri and Texas and Kansas, surrounding states, all of which are offering higher pay. Leaving teaching is hard. Leaving a place you teach at when you don't want to, but literally can't afford to stay, that's even harder. And that's what happened to Sean. In the years since, Sean has slowly moved more into education policy, now working as the director of governmental affairs at his Texas school district. He managed to do the job for a while on a part-time basis, which let him keep his classes in the morning and do meetings in the afternoon. But in the past year, he's transitioned it into a full-time role. But he still does a lot of work to make schools the best they can be for students. Unfortunately, Sean's story is not unique. A 2019 report on the Oklahoma State Department of Education website says Oklahoma lost over 30,000 teachers between 2012 and 2018, and this was before COVID-19. The report then goes on to say that pay increases alone won't keep them in classrooms, but a large group of that leaving population says it would have made a difference in their decision to go or stay. Now, that being said, pay isn't the only thing that keeps teachers in classrooms. We talked about it before in episode two, and we're going to see it in action through our next interview. Sometimes teacher pay, even when it's high, just doesn't make up for all the extra duties that come with teaching. If you know a teacher or if you are a teacher, you know this is not an eight to three gig. It's bus duty at seven, it's carpool until four, it's lesson planning after dinner, it's grading on Sundays, it's basketball practice before dawn, it's side jobs in the summer. And for some teachers, all of those extra duties can add up fast, literally. And not just in cash, but also in time. And this is where we meet Rachel. Rachel is from New Jersey, but she got her start as a teacher in a very rural Mississippi town right out of college through Teach for America. When she thinks back to her first years of teaching, the memories are full of challenges, a lot like Sean's, but they're also full of that same fulfillment. I was like, all right, cool. Guess I'm going to Mississippi. And then after teaching for two years in Mississippi, I just didn't want to stop teaching. I just really enjoyed it. And I felt like I was, it for like the first time ever, I felt like I had like a responsibility that really made sense and that made a difference. And like, I felt like I was waking up with purpose, not just like survival of I need to make money to pay for college or pay pay rent or whatever. It was like, wow, I'm like, it really matters that I'm doing this. So then I kept teaching after that. 
Rachel Sturt was in a super rural school district that didn't have a lot of resources. It struggled with its own teacher attrition crisis. And as a result, the school utilized a short schedule and lots of holidays to keep the school open. While there was extremely low pay, Rachel remembers a very good work-life balance by her second year. I definitely had the most success in classrooms where like I built really strong relationships with kids and didn't have to use any kind of like system for management, that kind of thing. All of those things that I learned, those like nuances to teaching, they just like came with time. So it was like a bumpy road for a little bit. And then it sort of smoothed out. And I feel like by the end of my second year, which of course was in Mississippi, by the end of that second year, I really felt like I like had a good stride, really surprisingly very balanced in my life because the school day there was so short. Really? Yes. It was like 7.55 to like 2.15. Yeah. Because of the bus schedule or something? They had to get them home, but crazy. Yeah, it was the only school in the county. Some kids had like a two-hour bus ride. Mm -hmm. It was high school. So like typically I think high school days tend to be shorter because they don't put all the fluff in there. They were short on teachers. So there weren't a ton of like elective sort of things. And I felt like we had off like all the time. Like we had half days and holidays, like (laughs) it felt like all the time. So my second year, because I felt like I hit a good stride with planning, because I knew like what worked the year before, I felt like I had stronger classroom management, having a really short work day and like plenty of time off. I just really felt like I had a good work-life balance Mm -hmm. after that second year. Rachel completed her two-year commitment with Teach for America, and like many TFA teachers, she decided to go back home afterwards. She had learned a lot, she loved her kids, but she was ready to get back to her family. She also thought she might be a little more financially stable now thanks to the AmeriCorps grant, a loan forgiveness grant you get for participating in Teach for America or other AmeriCorps programs. So to be clear, this is a little bit off track, but since this is the quote-unquote money episode, I'm going to go ahead and keep this in here. Some people know that when you complete AmeriCorps programs, you get $6,500 per year of service in whatever AmeriCorps program to use for future tuition or to pay off student loans. So in TFA, at the end of your two-year commitment, you get $13,000, and you can use that towards grad school. You can pay off your loans. It's actually a really big recruitment tool for the program. But what they conveniently leave out is that your loan forgiveness money from teaching will be taxed as income once you cash in on it. Yeah. So I specifically remember at one of our TFA meetings, somebody, we were talking about this like $10,000. And I told my friend, I'm like, I need that money. Then I go to this, this event or something, people at TFA, and they're like, be careful with that grant money. I'm like, what do you mean be careful with it? They're like, if you use all of it at once, (laughs) you're going to get so screwed on your taxes. They consider it a gift, even though you can only use it to pay off your government subsidized loans. So money I borrowed from the government that I'm taking money that the government is gifting me and I have to pay my own money taxes to pay their gift. And it would be like three or four grand. So I did use it and I had the money to pay, but I was very careful when I did pay for it. I didn't know that was how it worked. And so I used $6,000 at a time. And so I think it was 12 total. And the first year I used mine for my master's tuition. So I just sent it directly to them. In mind, I was in grad school. So I was getting that, what is it? American Opportunity Credit, Lifetime Learning Credit, Mm. whatever. So I always got a refund. Like it was always enough. It pushed it back. So I didn't know you got taxes 
Then I finished my master's, used the last six grand to pay off some loans Mm -hmm. and got a like $5,000 tax bill (gasps) because I had paid all my school tuition before December 31st. So it didn't count into that school year. And I had um, just gotten engaged to my husband. We had just gotten a house together. To be perfectly clear, um, we it was very, very clear who had money and who did not. And I don't say that in like, oh, they have money, like not in a flashy way, but like my husband was an attorney who had no student loans. His parents had helped him buy the house that we now have, all mm-hmm. these things. And I had like 80 grand in student loan debt. Like it was terrifying. And I remember telling Mm -hmm. him that and I was like, this isn't going to work. Like, it's crazy. Like the man has never overdrafted a bank account. So now I had to come to him and be like, I have five grand in taxes and I don't have any money. That's why I spent that gift. But it was like, I'm a teacher. I was making $35,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Like I was in credit card debt by that point because you just can't live off of Mm -hmm. it. That's a whole nother podcast season of just like the (laughs) the AmeriCorps grant and how messed up it is. Okay, enough of that sidebar rant. I just had to, you know, provide another example of teachers not being compensated for their work. La la la. But seriously, why are we taxing teachers on their loan forgiveness? I'll let you all marinate on that for a second. And now we're back to your regularly scheduled programming. At the end of the two years, I got recruited back to New Jersey anyway. Mm-hmm. And when they told me my salary, I was like, you can put me on a plane right now. <laughs> what was the difference? If you don't mind me asking, you don't have to say no, I don't mind. salary. In Mississippi, my first year, I made 30,000. Mm-hmm. My second year, I made 36,000. Nice jump. Oh, it was, that was big. Yeah. They, com- they consolidated all the schools. Um... And so then they got to have, um, like way less teachers. And then, you know, because mm-hmm. of all the money they were saving, they gave us like a big raise, which was great. Yeah. But still 36,000. It's not like you were making bank. Like it's like, great. I can right. kind of survive better now. Yeah. My 30. So my third year of teaching is when I went back to New Jersey and my starting salary was 63. So it like doubled basically. Yeah. It doubled literally. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Was that salary offer like a significant decision for you deciding to keep teaching or you just, I know you said you were doing well and you loved it. So you were just ready to keep going with it just closer to home. Yeah. I was like pumped to keep teaching. Obviously cost of living, there's a difference. And I hear that argument all the time, but I'm like, but actually cost of living is a difference, but it's, you cannot make the difference between literally doubling your salary and So what was um, the new school like? So you're coming from a very rural district, so small, it starts getting consolidated, school days short just to make bus schedules work. What is the school in New Jersey like? So public charter in Newark, New Jersey, which is just 10 minutes outside of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And the charter schools there, they're all, the, the charter school that I was part of was mainly formed by other Teach for America teachers. I will say, like coming from Mississippi, I didn't really ever feel unsafe in Mississippi. There were times that I I saw gun violence and things in like Newark, New Jersey. There were times that I felt like it was, and I know there was a lot of stuff that happened in Mississippi, and there, and there were times that I knew and was like connected, or there were fights and things like that. But I really felt like the school that I taught in in New Jersey 
the area, it just, it felt like inner city, like you would expect. Not that the kid, there was not, nothing wrong with the kids. Like I loved and adored the kids. The parents were great. The families were fantastic, but it felt, it was a polar opposite of Mississippi. But the school itself, the teachers were great. It was a very like close knit teaching community and they had all the resources in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like you never had to go on Amazon and like shop around, like maybe dry erase markers will be on sale this week. Like if you needed something or are you talking like instructional resources or staffing? So it was like everything. So if I wanted something like dry erase markers and they didn't have them at the school or like for science, for example, let's say I was like, I really need these chemicals for an experiment that I want to do. They would be like, okay, that's fine. Just order them and like send us the receipts and we'll cut you a check. Wow. From a public charter. Like that's dang. This school, the culture of the school is like, if you work hard enough, anything's possible, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and if you have to get it done, just figure out how to get it done. Mm -hmm. So part of that is like, sometimes teachers would literally sleep at the school. People would get to school at like 5 a.m. People would be working like 24-7 and I'm not exaggerating. So like (laughs) the culture was like burnt out quick, like real quick. And then the other part of it is that in Mississippi, my class sizes, I, my biggest class was maybe 25 kids. My classes in New Jersey, my first year, I had three classes. They were an hour and a half straight. I had 40 kids in them. Just packed into a room, just you. Yes. It was brutal. Brutal. We've talked about big changes that happen when you move schools before. And in that regard, Rachel's experience wasn't much different. Except she was making way more money than most teachers in her situation. She was getting paid for all her overtime, unlike so many teachers who put in the long hours for a fraction of her salary. But because of that, she felt like she couldn't complain and she didn't think she could stop. So I was just like hanging on by a thread. No joke. And that's, that is insane. That is insane. Yeah. Yeah. But then at the same time, like, you're like, how much can I really complain? I'm like here in New Jersey. I'm like making way more money. I do have like some amount of support. Like I had people who are really trying to coach me and really like, I had a coach that was in my room every week and I got way better at teaching, Mm -hmm. but it was like way harder. And like expectations, there were really, really high. So like, I felt like in Mississippi, if I walked into another teacher's classroom and I heard a couple kids like chitter chattering in the back, mm-hmm. or like I saw somebody not taking notes when the teacher said take notes, mm-hmm. it's just like people would be like, yeah, that's like part of it, right? Like you check in with the kid, see what's going on, but like let's not blow up the whole thing over it. Yeah, you're not going to lose new... it just because one out of 20, but here. The new school was 100%. That was the expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that became its own separate thing too, of like, okay, now I also have to maintain like way, way, way higher expectations. I was like tired and burned out, but I was also like, you walk in other people's classrooms and you're like, okay, this can be done. So like, it's me, right? Like if all these other people can do it, then like, why am I not doing it? 
everybody else can do it. And like, that was kind of the coaching also of like, Oh, you think it's like so-and-so go watch him in someone else's classroom. He's fine. Yeah. So like, it's kind of messed up, but it also is really motivating for me. It was like, okay, then I just have to take personal responsibility and like figure out how to be better at teaching, whatever that means. And so I just was like running myself ragged. I did finish out the year as strong as I could. We got through the curriculum. My kids had like a, like slightly higher than average test scores on things, even though it wasn't state tested. At the end of the year, there were enough, like they could tell that I was working really hard that like they did want me to come back for a second year, which I was yeah. surprised about. I was like, there's no way. So you get that through that first year, you move into the second year um, and you did two years there, correct? I did four years there. Oh, I didn't know you were there for so long. Mm-hmm. They, they moved me up with a class because I had such a strong, I had such a strong year with them my mm-hmm. second year that they moved me up to the next grade level with them. So I was, I taught the same group of kids for two years in a row. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I'll be honest, like I, if I were to like pick up teaching today, which I'm not going to, I can almost guarantee you, I would be in like the top, probably 10 to 20% of teachers in terms of like the skills that I have in my back pocket. Mm-hmm. Now, do I agree with all of those skills? No, I do not. But I know that like from teaching there, I became an objectively like good teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like my classroom management got a lot stronger. Rachel was getting really good, really fast, but it was costing a lot of time. This wasn't an eight to three job. This wasn't an eight to five job. This wasn't a five day a week job. Rachel's whole entire life was consumed by teaching and it was exhausting. I do feel like I built, you know, decently strong relationships, but end of third going into fourth year, I just like wasn't feeling it. Like I was the science department chair. We got like a new curriculum. I got a new curriculum for like the whole school. It was Mm -hmm. fine. I felt like I was working so hard all the time and I was making fantastic money. Like people don't believe me a lot of times. I was making over a hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow. You got good raises your second years. How did it go up because you were a chair or being a science department chair, being a coach, I would coach like running. But yeah. <laughs> so you were doing well financially. Yeah, like it was it was really paying off. I went from being like I will give everything, I'll give all my time, I'll give all my energy, all my efforts. What about a real life here? What about like my weekends? Like in order to maintain this level of, you know, quote unquote success or whatever, I'm sacrificing like a lot, mm-hmm. which is unsustainable. Just kind of lost the spark for it. So you were, and I'm just going off. So probably like late twenties had, were in your fifth, sixth year when this revelation starts occurring and the cup was just empty. I mean, for so long you had been pouring and pouring and pouring. Mm-hmm. And while now it is yes, financially, getting to a point where you can live comfortably and you can live well off of that. But it's like, when do you actually have time to use it? If you're coaching a meet every weekend or staying late every single night, Mm -hmm. like how do you have a life? And so. Yeah. And that's the other thing people say, like people say like, Oh, you're so consistent. You're so reliable. And you know what that gives you? It gives you more responsibility. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's all it is. So like, I mean, that, there's a level of frustration there too, where I can remember so many times, like my, my last year there, 
I was so on time. They knew I was going to be there and they knew that I could do whatever that like, they gave me a reading block in the morning. Everyone else had a partner. I was by myself. Mm-hmm. Then not only was it by myself, then the kids that like didn't have teachers that they connected with for the reading block, they were with me too. Mm-hmm. And it's like, man, people, can I get like a freaking break here? Like throw me another prep. So when I was in TFA, one of the reasons that I left was because it was financial. And mm-hmm. I specifically had a goal that before 30, I wanted to be making hundred grand a year. I remember going over to a friend's house, maybe my third year of teaching, let's say. Mm-hmm. And I, <laughs> this is kind of ridiculous, but we had like a half day or something after the last day of school. And I went to a med spa and I got like five things. Like I got like a facial and I got Botox and I, whatever it was, just like put it, do whatever you need to do to make me look like a normal person. Cause I'm like donezo. So it was like one o'clock in the afternoon. I'm leaving the med spa. I go to her house and she's like gardening. And I'm like, what are you doing? It's like one o'clock in the afternoon on like a Wednesday at a job. Jokingly. <laughs> but yes, I get it. <laughs> I'm like, what is, what is going on here? I'm like, are you unemployed? Like, come on. And she's working in real estate. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how are you doing so well in real estate? This is what you're doing on a Tuesday afternoon or what, whatever it is. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So like a couple months go by and she's like, you're not going to believe it. I hit my goal for this year. I made a hundred grand. I'm like, you're not going to believe it. I was so pumped. I hit my goal and I made a hundred grand last year. Mm-hmm. And then I'm thinking to myself, I see this girl on the weekends. I see her on random like Wednesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. And we are living two extremely different lifestyles. I am busting my butt every day for every dollar. So I'm like, there's no freaking way. I'm like, this is ridiculous. She's living a way better life than me. I'm like, that's quality of life. What I'm doing is not quality of life at all. So I just decided like, I'm like, man, like I really need a change. I'm like, I clearly I'm somebody who can be a good employee. Mm -hmm. Maybe it like doesn't have to be teaching, right? Like maybe I can figure out how to use this in a different way. So I went from spending my spare time coaching and doing whatever to my fourth year of teaching, I did nothing. Yeah. I showed up there 45 minutes before the kids and I walked out the door with the kids. Yeah. How did that feel after so long of busting your ass? (laughs) Tense. It felt tense. Really? Because I felt like the school culture was like, you give 110%. And I was like, how about I give you what I'm paid for my hours? And like, I got to go. Wow. Yeah. So it became a lot of like setting boundaries, saying no, and people being like, but last year you took on XYZ, but like, it it can't be a thing. So it was really hard. I really, I, because I felt like I was friends with like my coach and like the other people in my grade level. And I felt like they were offended. I don't know. Offended is not the right word. They expected me to give every single thing and more. And I was like, I only have like this much. And I think Um, of like, you didn't have like kids or someone you had to go to and let's get real. Most teachers, it's a highly female profession, have kids. Like how can you expect that of all of your staff? Or did they just expect all their staff to be young or not have families? And then, 
either way, it's like, hey, I have a right to have a life outside of this. Right. Well, that's so interesting that you mentioned that because this school was started by people, I think, when they were right out of TFA, Mm -hmm. young, early 20s, and like everybody could commit that time, you know, that amount of time. Mm -hmm. And I think as like the school aged, more of the key players there, because there were a lot of people that had been there from day one, Mm -hmm. had to go home to their families. So you start working with your friend, um, with her business and you start kind of the egg starts hatching, like, Hmm, what could this be? And how's that? Yeah. So honestly, the business like skyrocketed, like way faster than we expected. Mm -hmm. Um, and I went from like zero to a hundred because I also wasn't a licensed agent at that time. I just was doing like organization and like little background marketing things. So I also got my real estate license during that time. But then I was also like helping her manage the back end of her business to help her grow. Mm -hmm. And then got my license, joined a brokerage. We had a team for like a very short period of time. And then I broke off and went on my own a couple months late, a couple months after leaving teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, when I had like some skin on my teeth, I was working harder, but I was working like so differently that it didn't, it didn't bother me in the same way. How did it feel when finally the year was over and you weren't renewing your contract? You weren't coming back. You weren't going to summer PD. What did that feel like? It was so weird because I really felt a huge sense of guilt because I really felt like strongly about teaching being a great profession and like my school being great. Cause I, I was super bought into my school. Like I didn't feel anything negative towards them. Mm-hmm. If anything, I felt negative, like towards myself for leaving and like not being obsessed with teaching because a lot of people there are obsessed with teaching. They love it. They live it, breathe it, everything. And like, I did feel a sense of guilt of like, maybe I'm like, not so into this. This is not like my, it's not the air that I breathe whatever, every day. Um, so I did not tell anybody that I was leaving. I only told the principal. And once again, just like that, another hardworking teacher out the door. Rachel saw the unsustainable nature of the job she worked and she realized it wasn't going to work for the rest of her life. So when another opportunity came up, she grabbed it. I'm not sharing Rachel's story here to say, oh, don't pay teachers more, they'll still leave. I'm sharing it to say you should pay teachers more, but don't think that every extra nickel and dime means you should expect more and more and more out of your teachers. The argument is teachers are underpaid for what they are already doing and how much work they have. So when you make what Rachel was making, but the workload has basically doubled or even tripled, you're not paying her more. You're giving her even more work to do and matching what she was already making with it. It was unsustainable, and so she left. You said at the beginning, and I do not say this to invalidate your guilt, because I think that is so yeah. valid. Um, but now knowing how secure you are in your decision, like you said, I would not go back to teaching. Can you? Is that mostly just because of the work-life balance in terms of having that amount of money or is that has have other things since come up that have made you feel that way? There are so many things that have like really, really made me feel strongly about that. I made the right decision. And that's not to say that like, it was easy every day since I left from a financial perspective. One of them is just that like, it really bothers me that teachers are not allowed to write things off that legitimately are write-offs. 
Mm -hmm. (laughs) It also bothers me when like the government is managing my money and gets their cut before I get mine. Mm -hmm. So, so now I'm a real estate agent, but I also own a staging company. And then I also run sort of like a side hustle on Etsy. But what has been really like empowering for me as a person is that I get paid first Mm -hmm. and then I get to decide like what to do with my money. Like I decide how much goes into my retirement accounts. I decide how much is used on things that like will be considered write-offs, like client gifts and like marketing and all of that. And it's not like I get what's left. Like I don't, I don't like being left with like the last piece of pie and the government got their cut. Mm -hmm. So there's like a definitely like a sense of my, my own sort of like power and control in that, which I think is in a good way. Not like I, you know, I'm trying to be controlling, but I've really enjoyed that. And I feel like it's made me like appreciate owning a business or running a business or whatever more than I did before. Rachel jumped from the classroom into the real estate market, and now she has multiple thriving businesses. She still works her butt off, to be clear, but she does it on her own terms now. She has more control of her finances, more control of her time, and she's not tied to her school for every single penny and in return, every single minute of her life. Rachel's story ends as the perfect transition to our final guest today, an entrepreneur or educational entrepreneur whose professional work is all about helping teachers gain financial freedom through their own businesses. You might have seen stuff kind of like this on TikTok or other social media. Teachers who've left the classroom, they start their own tutoring companies, they become virtual assistants, they do social media, stuff like that. Now, this person doesn't exactly fit in that box because while she does help teachers build businesses, she's very vocal that teachers deserve more than what they get now. They deserve lives like Rachel's, making six figures, thriving, and in complete control of their professional lives and their finances. Now, I'd like you to meet Erica. So my name is Dr. Erica Jordan Thomas, and Who am I? I am an educator at my core and I'm also an edupreneur. So an educator who's also an entrepreneur and how my career started. I started my career as a teacher. So I was a high school math teacher in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then just a a variety of experiences um, that I had as a teacher confirmed that like it was my life's purpose and a theme that has occurred throughout my career, which I'm sure we're going to get into a little bit more, is that every time I, I've, I've noticed that every time I've been exposed or learn about some type of inequity, I feel called to do something about it. So that's what brought me to teaching. And then as a teacher, I saw the next level of inequities at a school level, which is what inspired me to become a principal. Um, And then as a principal, I saw the next level of inequities at the system level, which inspired me to go and get my doctorate in education leadership. And so now I run my business full time, which is an education consulting business. And I am a business coach in kind of the most simplest way for educators who are on their journey of of launching and growing the consulting, education consulting business too. 
Erica has seen education at all levels, as a teacher, as a principal, as an independent consultant, and now running her own successful businesses. She's motivated by a strong desire to solve problems and provide solutions. And as we all know, we could fall down dozens of rabbit holes if we tried to examine all of the inequities in public education. But the one we're talking about with Erica today is financial inequity for teachers. She saw it firsthand in her first year as a teacher. Well, let me back up here just a little bit, kind of on what you said about teaching and noticing the inequity. So obviously there's inequity at all of levels, um, whether at the classroom, school, systemic level, but specifically when you were a teacher and then moving to a principal, can you speak a little bit more maybe about the financial inequity that you saw there when you were in the trenches, so to speak? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the financial equity that comes most to mind was just my own salary as a teacher. And so uh, as a first year teacher and a second year teacher, my salary was around $33,000. We were paid once a month on a 10 month salary schedule. So that's roughly before taxes around $3,000, again, before taxes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as someone whom you know, I, I did not come from, <clears throat> I did not, I grew up middle-class, but I, I could not just call family for money. Mm-hmm. Um, I very much so, you know, had to rely on myself to be able to sustain my, myself financially. I just, I just struggled immensely financially as a teacher <clears throat> to where, you know, I slept on an air mattress the first few months as a first year teacher I didn't have any living room furniture my first year as a teacher. I just couldn't afford it. And I remember my second year of teaching, I had to make a serious decision because I was like, I love what I do, but I actually cannot afford continue to to be a teacher um, because I am barely breaking even, (laughs) like barely breaking even any month. I actually don't have any disposable income. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was kind of the... I mean, that's the most stark one that comes to mind is I remember, you know, making that decision of I immensely love my kids and love what I do. And I can't afford to continue to be a teacher because of 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 how much I'm being paid. So, um, yeah, that's that's the one of the financial um, kind of inequities that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. And that inequity is not limited to just you not barely breaking even. As a result, your district lost a really great teacher because you couldn't afford to stay in that job. And so just to emphasize how big of an impact that left, can you remind us some of the amazing things you did in the classroom? I know you've got a couple of things related to maybe test scores and some other stuff you did while you were teaching for a couple of years. Yeah, sure. So uh, I taught before Common Core, and so I was a high school math teacher, so I taught uh, algebra two and geometry, which were the two, I I taught four preps, but the two tested preps, state tested preps were algebra two and geometry. And for um, algebra two, it's it's been 10 years. And so I'm trying to make sure I don't get my numbers confused. Um, But we started, I believe at 17% and my students uh, 80 uh, I'm sorry, 96% of my Algebra 2 students passed the state test. And then for geometry, we started at, uh, I, I want to say 27%, 86% of my students passed the, the state test. And so um, I'm, I'm 
I have no shame in saying I was a damn good teacher. I was a really good teacher. So. Mm-hmm. Erica was extremely good at her job. She quickly moved from the classroom to an assistant principalship, followed shortly after by a full-time principal role. And while it was more of an economically stable position, Erica points out that she still wasn't being treated fairly in terms of her finances. So I led in North Carolina. I was a teacher and school leader in North Carolina. And at that time, this still might be accurate today, but it would need to be fact-checked. So at that time, North Carolina was ranked 49th in the nation for principal pay. And so I was a principal and my salary was $70,000, $75,000 a year, um, which is low for a principal. And so um, I, I, I want to, you know, clarify a little bit this assumption that um, principals are, are paid well, um, where 75K is a good salary. And uh, when you think about that salary in comparison to kind of job alike responsibilities, I mean, a, a, a principal is managing an entire school building. Mm-hmm. And so they can be considered almost like the if you're we're making a translation into a corporate context, like this is like your COO, your CMO, your CIO, like any type of chief of any type of, of work stream would be equivalent to a principal. You would never hear of a chief making $70,000. And so I just named that of it most certainly was an increase in pay and you know, part of the issue that is a sector issue within education is we have normalized scarcity. And so there's this belief that like, oh, because principals are paid better than teachers, like the 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 comparison is teachers when it's like, well, teachers are underpaid. <laughs> and so like, like that's, that's, that's just a piece that, you know, I just, I just make sure that, you know, I, I advocate for on the behalf of principals um, and I mean, even with 70K, you know, I would, and that's before taxes and that's being paid once a month. And like, you know, if you backtrack that to a 10 month salary, that's maybe $70,000 a month for 10 months. You spread that across 12 months. That's probably, you know, 60, 5,500, 60,000 before taxes. You take taxes out, then you're back at maybe 4,000, 3,500. And then I didn't have a family, mm-hmm. but I did have, you know, student loans. I did mm-hmm. have a car payment. I did have, you know, certain bills around that time. I bought a home mm-hmm. um, and I went into debt in order to buy a house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, I was still financially struggling, even as a school leader, because I was still underpaid. Let's think about that quote, normalized scarcity. I call it a scarcity mindset. It's where we just assume there's no money in schools. And since there is no money, there's no possible way that we could pay teachers more, pay principals more. Erica's deconstruction of a scarcity mindset only came after she got out of the typical K-12 setting. And that's a common theme I hear from teachers after they leave teaching. They tell me things like, I didn't know I was so stressed all the time until I worked another job and saw that wasn't normal. Or I didn't know paying for my own stapler was weird. Or I didn't realize other people managing entire buildings weren't making below six figures. Teachers operate in this completely different culture compared to a lot of other industries and sectors. And that could be for a ton of different reasons that we definitely don't have time to delve into today. But either way, we know that teaching and education is one of the most important roles in society. But overall, society isn't willing to pay the full cost for the high-quality version of it. 
Eric argues that it isn't our responsibility to sit back and just take what's offered. We have a right to go out and earn what we're worth. What what prompted my decision to to leave the principalship and to go back to school full time was actually less about the pay because to be transparent, I don't think I saw I don't think I could see the scarcity baked into the system until after I left. Mm. And I still consider myself to be in the system a bit, though I'm not as proximate as I was as a principal or a teacher. Mm. I still consider myself to very much so be an educator. Um, but I, 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 I couldn't see the dysfunction that I had normalized and the system had normalized until I was out of it. And so my mind at that time wasn't, didn't view myself as being, I knew I had a, a low salary as a principal, but I, I did not view it as a financial inequity. I do now, but I wouldn't have used that language then. What actually inspired me to go back to school full time is a little bit of what I named earlier of every, mm-hmm. every major transition in my career has been motivated by witnessing some type of injustice or inequity and feeling called to do something about it. And so as a principal, we did a great and amazing things in, in, in partnership with our community. I had the most amazing staff. I had the most wonderful boss. Like it was a dream role for me. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I was still operating within a system that, that, was creating what felt like walls that I had to consistently run around or try and run through in order to do what felt like it was best for kids. Erica was running a building, which meant she felt personally responsible for hundreds of kids and the quality of education they got. But she was constantly running into walls, and a lot of these walls were tied to the ways that teachers were paid and the way that we prioritize paying teachers. So I'll give you one quick example is... Uh, from a licensure standpoint within our state, any teacher who was out of state had to go through the state department to actually get their licensure license transferred to the state in order to re- uh, receive credit, will you say, or acknowledgement of their years of service. And so if you had had 10 years of experience as a teacher in Georgia, you have to go through the State Department of North Carolina for those 10 years to be honored so that way you can start off at teacher pay that acknowledged your 10 years. Mm-hmm. Well, within North Carolina, it would take anywhere from three to six months to actually confirm your license. So imagine me as a principal, and let's say the best case scenario is I meet you in May or mm-hmm. April, which is like peak hiring time. I meet you April, May. The year before you plan to move to North Carolina and you're considering working at my school, we would have situations where we would recommend people for hire and they would accept the job offer. And then now it's August and their license still hasn't been approved. So they have to start at first year teacher pay until their license is approved for another two to three months. And so that was like one of the system injustices where I would constantly be losing talent because they would have to start at, at a pay of, of, of zero years of experience that would then be retroactive paid once their licensure would get approved. 
But that was the challenge that we would have to deal with. And I understand the humanity of, of people working really hard. And to be honest, it's not my problem if the state is understaffed and they can't process these all these all these applications. Like that's an issue you need to figure out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, I have very little sympathy as a principal who's trying to get great talent for kids, like mm-hmm. hire people. Um, and so that's that was one of the many systems and justices that I was like. I love the work that I do as a principal and I am operating within a system that is making what is already hard work even harder. And I want to, I want to, I want to study what does it actually mean to create change at a system level? And a school is a system, but schools also operate in a larger ecosystem. And that's the system I focused in. It's, it's, and I I don't want to, I say this um, and I, I say it with a asterisk because I don't want my statement to be taken the wrong way, but even classrooms are systems. Mm-hmm. Teacher, the work that a teacher does is hard, but it is easier to move a classroom than it is to move a district. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, I, I don't say that to diminish the work of a teacher because teachers work extremely hard and we have more great individual classrooms than we have great school districts. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, there is a complexity at the system level that is like takes a, a very intentional type of leadership and research and like investigation and knowledge and skills that I wanted to take time to be able to study that, to be able to figure out what would it actually take to make what happened in my classroom, the magic that happened in my classroom, the magic that happened in my school to happen at an entire system level. So that's what, what inspired my transition uh, to go to, to leave the principalship and go to, to get my doctorate full-time. Erica left the K-12 system. She was frustrated by the systems that were creating inequitable outcomes for students, whether because teachers literally couldn't afford to live on their salaries or because school leaders couldn't change problems at the state level. So she sold her house, she packed everything up, she moved north, and she enrolled in a doctoral program at Harvard University. Last year, Erica graduated from that program after working part-time as a private consultant and full-time as a grad student. But like I said earlier, she's deconstructed this scarcity mindset around paying teachers, in part because she's lived and worked in a place where graduates are expected to do well financially, and they are given the tools to do so. She's seen what it's like to have expectations of generating wealth. But not everyone should have to attend an Ivy League school to break even on their bills every month, and Erica's determined to get those resources into the hands of teachers. When she says she wants to break down systemic barriers, she means, like, break them down with a sledgehammer. Her work with Get Launched Consulting is all about getting teachers resources to build their wealth rather than keeping them trapped in places that operate with that scarcity mindset and often leave teachers with very few options for financial freedom. On the Get Launched Consulting side, you know, our, our, our vision is that we are disrupting the racial inequities within the system through empowering those who are closest to the problem to be closest to the power, right? And so what I mean by that is that traditionally, when we think about who an education consultant is, if you are to Google the top education consulting firms, the two most frequent results that you will see will be Boston Consulting Group and McKinsey. Those are two management consulting firms that happen to have education departments. And if you do some research on their website, there are are clear perspectives and voices and identities that are missing. 
And, and to me, I consider that to be incredibly problematic mm-hmm. that, that we have normalized um, those who are not of the community to be experts. And when I say not of the community, I'm talking across all identity markers of, of experience. If you've never taught before, I don't believe you should be consulting with the school. That's my personal opinion. Um, we have normalized that those who don't share the racial background of our students are experts in how to solve problems for students that, that, that are historically marginalized and oppressed within our community. We're outsourcing to people who don't identify with the community. I consider that to be problematic. Erica goes deep to identify the source of problems, and she calls them out. Why do schools pay millions of dollars to consultants across the country to people who don't even know the school's kids, who don't know their context, who may not even have that much teaching experience? Instead, you could be putting that money directly back into your teachers, the ones who have the most impact on your kids. For Erica, the vehicle for systemic change is about getting more help for schools that isn't led by consultants who aren't familiar with your kids. It's about using the talent around you. And that talent is actually more familiar with your school's context, your demographics. They know your kids. They know what they need to succeed. So Get Launch Consulting is all around what does it actually mean to disrupt these power dynamics? Why are people who have never worked in schools who are not a part of the community labeled as the experts when actually there are experts teaching right now in classrooms who are solving the problems we're trying to find the answers to? Why aren't they the ones that we're elevating and we're, we're increasing their power to help them partner with schools and communities and districts to be able to discover the solutions they've already found in their own context? And part of the, the biggest gap between that is, is those particular educators don't know how to start a business or they don't have access to the knowledge of what does it mean to start a business? So that's what Get Launch Consulting does is we're, we feel that gap of providing high-performing educators with the business acumen and knowledge and skill set to be able to launch their own education consulting business out of this theory of change that when you provide an educator who has done the work and has experienced results with the business tools to be able to launch their own education consulting business, schools and school districts will have more access to the actual experts and be able to accelerate their problem-solving practices, you know, at a larger scale. So that's that's on the Get Launch Consulting side of how I help educators um, improving their schools for teachers and students. I have so many thoughts because they're like, my page is just full of like notes and questions about all of that. And so I think I've always loved to get launched consulting, but I especially love um, the framing that I'm hearing now about it's not just closing a financial gap. It's also closing this gap of why are we getting consultants from Montana when we're in Florida? And that's something I'm actually studying now is especially with all of this ESSER money, which I think is great. And I think it is much, much needed. These are not new problems, but they have been exacerbated. But what I'm seeing a lot is that a lot of school districts are hiring these external companies to handle all these problems, which means that those companies are growing and they need to hire more people. And who do they hire? Teachers. And who's ready to jump out of the classroom because they're not being taken care of right now? Right. Teachers. But it's that vortex you were talking about of these companies that may not necessarily have a ton of teaching experience or school leadership experience at all 
definitely do not know the community or have the context, but there's money right now. That's who's getting paid because that's what's there and quick to invoice. Right, right. Right. Well, the other piece that you just mentioned that, you know, is the second part of our mission that I didn't didn't mention, Mm because the first part of our mission is around disrupting power dynamics within the education sector around who is considered to be a a consultant. And the second part of our mission is around closing the racial wealth gap. So to your point of the pay scale for consultants is vastly different than the pay scale for educators. And so to your point of, of this cycle that's created, to me, it is it is it is an injustice that someone who has never taught before can score a six-figure contract. Meanwhile, a teacher is being paid thirty-five thousand dollars. That, to me, is is such an incredible inequity and injustice on multiple levels. That that is the the other part of of our theory of action as well as our mission is an education consulting business is a strategy to stay in the profession and build wealth. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the unfortunate reality is that the, the level teacher pay is, is, is embarrassing. And I don't believe that people should have to sacrifice their social impact in order to get paid. They can both coexist. And one of the ways that I have found to do that is, is through starting an education consulting business. So our, mich- our, our mission is not leave your job. That is not like our branding message at all. Our, our branding message is that educators deserve to be wealthy and they, they, they shouldn't have to sacrifice their social impact in order to do that. Let's take that one in for a moment. Teachers shouldn't have to sacrifice their social impact in order to generate wealth. You shouldn't have to give up a passionate, altruistic career in order to make enough money to pay the bills, to afford daycare, to go on vacation a couple times a year. You deserve to be able to do that. And you shouldn't have to work 24-7 with no days off to finally break six figures, which ultimately costs you your quality of life. There should be balance, a way for there to be kids in your life while also having enough time and money to actually live your life and enjoy it. But right now, the system we have really doesn't guarantee that. So for all of those of you who are listening and maybe thinking, this is great, yay teachers, but what if they all leave and start businesses and there's no one left for our kids? Okay, pedal back. That's not what's going to happen. And it's not what every teacher wants to do. Lots of teachers want to stay in the classroom. It's what they love. It's where they want to be. But when you literally don't make enough money to buy diapers for your newborn, what do you do? If you're a school leader who is losing talent because your salary schedule is too low and the main thing driving teachers out the door is money, how do you find ways to at least try and start paying them what they're worth? I'm so glad you asked. Erica's done that too. It's actually how I first found out about her like three or four years ago. She did a TED Talk on one of her initiatives as a principal. It's called Opportunity Culture. So if you're a school leader listening in and you're like, I don't know how to retain my teachers on the salary schedule I have, listen up. And so can you tell us a little bit about the opportunity culture that you established when you were a principal? Yeah, sure. So Opportunity Culture is an initiative out of an organization in North Carolina called Public Impact. So they, they, Opportunity Culture is their brainchild. And the school that I led, we were one of the first schools in the nation to partner with them. So 
when we first established the partnership, I was an assistant principal and we continued the partnership on through my time as principal. And so essentially their kind of theory of change, uh, when I say there, I mean public impact, their theory of change is, well, if there is a teacher shortage, if there's a shortage of highly effective teachers, what could it actually look like to expand the reach of the existing high-performing teachers while we're also compensating them more and we're going to do it within the existing budget? So it shouldn't require, it shouldn't be dependent on external funding in order to make this happen. How do we use existing funds to compensate more teach, uh, effective teachers? But we're actually expand, expanding their reach. When we say expanding their reach, if a typical teacher, and I'm a secondary, you know, brain. And so I'm thinking of now periods. If we have a teacher who teaches three periods and 30 students per period, their reach is 90 students. Well, what would it look like if they're a highly effective teacher? What would it look like to expand their reach to be 180 students to where they're touching twice or maybe three times as many students as they normally would in their caseload, but we're going to pay them more um, in order to do it. So that's kind of the concept behind opportunity culture. Remember what I said about systemic change earlier? This is just one example of a solution that solves a lot of problems at once. New and novice teachers get mentorship and support. Experienced and especially talented teachers have an opportunity to increase their income. And kids who need them get the most skillful, hardworking teachers. So easy win-win, right? According to Erica, it's not as simple as just hiring a few extra people. In fact, it usually doesn't mean adding any more staff, but rather using the exemplary staff members you already have. But to do this, you have to be really intentional about how you manage your staffing model. And so what did it look like when you rolled it out? You said you guys were one of the very first districts that did it and you were there on the ground watching it go. So how did teachers react to it? How did admin react to it? What was the response? Yeah, so it was it was a the rollout happened over two to three years. So the first year, so actually let me clarify one piece is that with opportunity culture comes creation of new positions. Mm-hmm. And so it's also um, requires you to evolve your staffing model to where in most schools, there is, you know, a principal, assistant principal, there might be some type of other leadership position that's outside of the classroom, like a dean or uh, instructional facilitator, and then there's teachers. In Opportunity Culture, and all this stuff is on Public Impact's website, but they propose additional teacher positions that, because typically with, with roles that are outside of the classroom, they're typically still not teaching. They mm-hmm. still don't have a roster of students. So they have conceptualized roles that are a little bit of a hybrid of they have some type of coaching responsibility, but they all have also have some type of teaching responsibility. It's just the ratio of, of how much is coaching versus teaching kind of um, it, it slides depending on the position. So example, one of their positions is an extended reach teacher, which would have a teaching caseload of 80% and then a coaching caseload around 20%. Then they have a multi-classroom leader 
who, uh, and there's different levels of multi-classroom leaders. And so if you're a multi-classroom leader one, your teaching responsibility, which may or may not be a roster of students is around 50% and your coaching responsibility is 15%, is 50%. You're a multi-classroom leader two, which the acronym is MCL. If you're MCL two, you're now coaching 80% of the time and you have 20% of teaching responsibilities. Again, this may or may not be, you have a roster of students, which I'll explain here in a minute. So part of our, our rollout was the first year we just piloted some of the systems with one PLC in the building. So it was sixth grade math. We had an instructional facilitator piloting the the job responsibilities of an MCL. Um, And they did not have a roster of students, but what the structure that we kind of tested it and piloted that year is what would it look like to have weekly assessments that are are identifying where kids are on the, the standard or objective that was taught that week. And then based off of those weekly assessments, students would be uh, uh, identified into different groups. And the students who were in in most need of some type of remediation or support, well, if the MCL is the highly effective teacher, then they're being taught by the MCL one or two days the following week. Um, And or or, um, if there are kids who have already mastered that objective, then as the students who are needing more more remediation are in a a small group with the MCL, those students who are in need of acceleration are going to a computer lab with Mm. a teacher assistant, and they're engaged on a lesson that was planned by the MCL. Mm -hmm. And so that first year was just a lot, because as you can imagine, I know you as a teacher, you can think of all the systems (laughs) that are required behind that between assessments, between transitions, between groupings, between like there's so many systems within that, that year one was just like, we need to test the systems. Mm-hmm. Um, even something of like, how did 45 kids end up in the computer lab? <laughs> like, what is yeah. it like? It, like things like that, that was year one. So then year two is when we uh, formally started the the actual positions of now we're going to start with our first MCL, which was the same, which was that instructional facilitator the year before. And then the third year, we rolled it out to every ELA, every math, every ELA PLC, every math PLC, and then our science eight PLC. So I led a middle school in North Carolina and North Carolina science eight is a tested subject. Mm-hmm. In uh, math, six through eight is tested and ELA six through eight is tested. So we had an uh, MCL for ELA six, one for ELA seven, one for ELA eight, one for math six, one for math seven, one for math eight, and one for science eight. And so that was where we, we that was essentially the model that we grew to. Um, and through that, uh, it was identifying teachers who were, had proven results. They were highly effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're expanding their reach through either teaching students and or planning the content. And so our staff's reactions to that, I, and and I'm sorry, one step back, MCLs also served as the instructional coach for their PLC of teachers. Mm-hmm. So the staff reaction to it was actually very, very receptive. Mm-hmm. because they received so much feedback. Mm. They received so much feedback. 
our evaluation system only required at, at most, and this was if you weren't a career teacher, you would get three evaluations during the year. With an MCL, you would have a weekly coaching conversation and a weekly observation. So um, we had a very positive staff um, uh, receptiveness to it, but we also hired the right people. We also communicated during the process. So it, it worked really well for us. But there were other factors that I think made it really powerful. They were not people who were hired from outside your district, outside your community. These were internal hires who say you're in the Science 8 PLC. And uh, Ms. Jordan Thomas is the new MCL for it. I've known her. I've worked with her. I've heard from her kids how awesome she is. I know she's good at this. If she comes into my classroom, I'm going to be so excited because she's going to give me all this feedback. And not only those things, but knowing the context of the school is so, so important. I've talked to some coaches who say, you know, I come in and I just visit that school once a month. I don't know what's Mm -hmm. going on there. I don't know what's reasonable. I don't know if the teacher is um, really having all of all of these things piled on them, or do they simply not know how this works versus someone who is in the building with them, you can confidently say they know what's up, they know what's going on, they are in the loop, all those things. And that's really powerful for teachers, that communication piece of it. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I think I think us because I think the first year the majority of our hires were internal. I think that played a huge role. Mm-hmm. Like they were teach, like you couldn't argue that the the people we hired were effective because you knew them. Like mm-hmm. they were they were internal. Yeah, I think that played a role for sure. And I think without a doubt, I mean, almost you can kind of think of opportunity culture is almost a little bit like RTI for teachers, where mm-hmm. like it 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 ensures that like everybody has the level of support that they need in order to be successful because you have a coach. And so because of that, you know, we were able to expedite the growth of our teachers that even if you were a first year teacher, we were able to ensure that you were giving quality lesson plans because your plans were, were developed by your MCL. So now we just have to focus on execution. And so our opportunity culture was a huge reason behind our academic growth, where we were able to exceed the growth according to the state. And um, we were ranked in the top one percent of growth in the state of North Carolina. And I think you know the fact that we were able to tremendously support our teachers in that way, I think played a huge, huge role in that. Yeah, I mean, supporting your teachers financially, because if you were an MCL um, and instructionally, having that instructional leader in the school paid off. I mean, all of these outcomes were so improved. And so what was the financial impact for the MCLs? And I know, I'm sure it was different depending on if they were an MCL one and MCL two, but do you have a general idea about how much more a school would have to pay if they wanted to establish this sort of system in their own school? Yeah. So an MCL two was an additional, I believe $20,000. And then an MCL one was an additional Mm -hmm. $10,000. But remember, this is all within your existing budget. And Mm -hmm. so that's, that's the piece here. And so for us, what that means is that, you know, so the, the school and district that I'd let in, we received teacher allotments versus some other schools and districts their budget is in dollars. Mm-hmm. So like they'll, they'll get, you know, $50,000 that's going to cover the salary of your entire staff through the end of the year. Mm-hmm. The way I received my budget was not in dollars. I received them in allotments of you have 30 teacher positions. 
Mm-hmm. And those could be a first year teacher. It could be a 15, a teacher with 15 year experience. I just got the allotments. Mm-hmm. And so essentially a teacher is worth one allotment. An MCL one is worth 1.2 allotments mm. and an MCL two is worth 1.5. Mm-hmm. And so in order to create an MCL2, I would have to trade half of a teacher position in to create that position. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that one of the trade-offs that you have to consider is that you are essentially increasing class sizes in order to create an MCL, but you're increasing it by two to three students. And here's my thing. And I, I totally, I hear the teacher, you know, thought and question and concern around class size. And I have seen, and I'm not saying everybody needs 40 students in their classroom. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But I have seen one of our MCLs take 40 students to the library and they're all on task, Mm -hmm. right? And so like, it's not my expectation that everybody has 40 students, but if you went from 20 to 25, if five students makes a big difference in your classroom culture, it's not the five students. It's actually your, your skill set and ability as a teacher to create a, a nurturing classroom environment. So our class sizes were anywhere from 25 to 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and a part of my philosophy, you know, what I share with MCLs of like, if your teachers are complaining about class size, then that's feedback around your coaching. Mm-hmm. And, or, yeah. and or it's feedback around your small group schedule. Mm-hmm. because. If they have 30 students, they should not have 30 students five days a week for each period. Because some of them days you're pulling small groups. Uh-huh. And so if they're complaining about class size. It's feedback and data around your coaching and your small group schedule. Um, so that's that's essentially from a budget standpoint, how it worked out. No, but I love how you framed it, though, because I think that's an important thing. A lot of school leaders would ask when they heard this, they'd be like, well, that's great, but there's no way that I can make this fit in my school budget without losing a position, which terrifies a lot of teachers or a lot of school leaders and teachers because they know those class sizes go up and there's lots of research on class sizes and things like that. But I know that's all very dependent on context. But like you said, with yours, yours is kind of covered because it's like, well, yes, your class size is going up, but realistically, you won't have that whole class every day of the week because your small group should be pulled. And those are the kids who are going to need a lot of academic help anyway. Then on top of that, you've got an instructional coach coming in regularly, weekly, who is going to teach you the strategies how to handle that. And so it covers the problem before the problem should begin. Right, right. And also, you know, too, a part of this is just like, and, and I think this is, this is, you know, just the reality in education where like, sometimes it's like, we have to, we have to make some choices of do, given that there's a teacher shortage, do I try and hire four teachers in a PLC? Or do I try and find three teachers and give them an amazing coach? Yes. So like, I think I I hear people on the like, well, I don't want to lose a teacher, but it's like, but can you find a high quality teacher? Yeah. Because I like you're you're banking on that additional position being filled by a high quality teacher who's experienced and knows what they're doing and like is 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 has the results and data to back it up. And the, my reality was I could not in April. I, I I felt like I could I could have a shot at that, but after May, 
it's, 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 it is, it's like the NFL draft. And I know there are some anomalies of, of, of amazing hall of famers that have been, have been drafted in the 15, 16 round. I don't even know how many rounds are in the NFL draft, <laughs> but like when I'm talking about kids, I want a first round pick. Mm-hmm. I want a first round pick. But when it comes to May, that's like 15, 16 round. And like, at that point, I, I, I cannot confidently say that I am going to be able to find a highly effective teacher to fill that position. So I think that's the other piece that like, we just have to acknowledge that like, there is a real issue when it comes to teacher pipeline and teacher talent. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole nother systemic issues that school leaders on their own cannot solve. But right. I think that is a helpful message for them of, if you're going to be hunting for teachers come April, are you going to spend all your time trying to fill every single spot when you don't know how high quality that fill is going to be? Or could you focus on changing your own internal system to support the staff you have? Right, right. There's a lot to unpack in this model and a lot of work for school leaders who want to make this kind of change. But it's being done in schools all across the country and it gets skill support for teachers and financial support for expert teachers and does what needs to happen to make school a productive environment for kids. Now, is it perfect? Probably not, but that's the nature of the beast in education. No one program or model will ever be a perfect fit for every single school. Schools are too diverse, too unique. They have too many contextual factors made up of all the different kids who attend them for any school to ever fit into a single mold. But could this method, this opportunity culture, be a way for some schools to support teachers and increase pay for teachers who deserve it? Yeah, it totally could be. And hopefully this tool will spark some ideas for some districts or buildings that need some fresh ideas. And if you need any help bringing those ideas to fruition, feel free to connect with Erica for more ideas. Yes. And so uh, for any school district or school leader who's interested in coaching or support and or if you are an educator who you've been thinking about starting an education consulting business and now you know it's time to go for it. I would love to be connected. And so you can follow me on Instagram at E as an Erica underscore Jordan Thomas. So E underscore Jordan Thomas on Instagram. The title of this episode is Outcome, Not Income. If you're a teacher, you've probably heard this phrase, but lately it's come under fire as a sign of toxic positivity in education. It kind of means like, oh, well, if we're in it for the kids, then the money doesn't matter because it's all about their outcome, not our income. Yeah, the money does matter. Passion ain't free. And just because we aren't paying as much doesn't mean the cost doesn't come out somewhere else, whether it be our time or our health or both. We talked a lot about pay for teachers today, but probably not in the way all of our listeners expected. The rhetoric I hear most often as a teacher and as a researcher is a blanket. We need to pay our teachers more. And while that may work for some, it doesn't work everywhere. Just look at Rachel's story. What strings came with that increased pay? It's also about a conversation on how districts and schools spend their money. Why do they invest in companies far away with no connection to our kids when we have master educators and innovative problem solvers right in our own buildings? It's about the mindset. Why is it so ingrained in our culture that education is cheap, that we can't pay our teachers more? Why do we ask so much of our educators and then get upset when the results aren't the best? We're asking for name brand education and paying for generic services. So why are we expecting gold when we're paying for brass? This is a complex, convoluted issue. 
And if you listened all the way through today thinking there was going to be a perfect answer at the end, I'm really sorry I disappointed you today. We haven't found it. But hopefully you got to thinking about teacher pay and when salaries are so low that we can't possibly expect families to survive on them. Or about how increasing pay doesn't mean we can increase responsibilities to the point of burnout. Hopefully you're starting to ask just how much that consultant costs when they visit your school. And you're starting to think about the mental math of how much that would cost if those services could be provided in-house instead. Teacher pay is just one small component of the teacher attrition vortex, and not all teachers will leave as a result of low pay. But if a teacher is dealing with low pay and at the same time, say, enduring extreme stress for a prolonged period of time, could that make them more likely to leave? Our next episode of Green Apple Pod is all about teacher stress, the heavy workloads, and the trauma our students carry into the classroom every day. That's up next week on Green Apple Pod. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode interesting and enjoyed it, please give us a rating and a review. The most important element of these stories is the lived experiences of teachers and education stakeholders. To share your perspective or to give feedback on this episode, please leave a voicemail or text message at 334-472-4019. You can also send a message through our website, passiontoprogress.com slash contact, or direct message our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. This has been Green Apple Pod, hosted by Jessica Enderlin Natsum and produced by Ruth Amundsen. If you would like to follow along and learn more, please subscribe to our host organization, Passion to Progress, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. We are available for listening through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean.